I lead from my heart and I lead with transparency and I'm super no nonsense. And I think that people appreciate a leader who is no nonsense if they know that that leader truly and genuinely cares about them. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Fawn Weaver. Fawn is a lifelong entrepreneur, starting out in public relations, then working in the restaurant industry in Los Angeles, and later founding her own investment firm. And in 2016, a particular kind of investment caught her eye. Fawn started researching rumors that Jack Daniels' whiskey was actually first distilled by a former slave. Just a year later, Fawn launched her own whiskey, named after Jack Daniels' master distiller, Nearest Green, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. Fawn, we're really excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the conversation, we like to do a little warm up with a lightning round so we can get to know you. Quick questions, quick answers. You ready? All right. Yeah. Fawn, what was your very first job on your resume? Well, that would be Pew Entertainment. So that was my PR and uh, special events firm. And I was 18. So, you know. (laughs) What is one word that a direct report would use to describe you? Badass. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Today. What'd you negotiate? Oh, I'm always negotiating something. (laughs) It's usually in regards, whether it's in regard to a capital raise or if it's in regard to inventory, there's always a negotiation going on. Currently today was about a real estate loan. Do you drink anything other than whiskey? I love Sorel liqueur. It's probably what I drink the most because for whatever reason, it just feels very healthy going down. It doesn't feel like alcohol to me. And in uh, Barbados, that is what the grandmothers all make. It's called Sorrel. But here, the brand by Jackie Summers is called Sorrel. It's out of Brooklyn. Hmm. And I have that in a spritzer. I have it by itself. I have it warm like a tea. So that's actually my go-to if I'm not drinking Uncle Nares. Carly, I would like you to bring that to me in the hospital after I have this child. That sounds really great. (laughs) It's so, let me tell you, it is so good. What is the last show you binge watch? You know, I'm not a binge watcher, but the last show I watched over the course of four weeks was Inventing Anna. And it was freaking brilliant. Oh my gosh. So good, right? So many thoughts. Oh, the scary part is watching her IG right now. Like if you go to her IG She's literally that exact person today, post being in jail. No, I've I've been looking. Yes. It's one of those things that you're like, yeah, she's going to come out of jail. She's totally going to be different. No, not different. No, I I could could watch 10 more episodes. She's going to create more episodes. I have no doubt about it. (laughs) What's the last book you read? Oh, gosh, the last book. That's terrible. Well, it would have been this morning, the Bible. Before that, I love Think Like a Monk. What is uh, the best drink to make with Uncle Nearest? Oh, oh, 
There's so many, but I would probably say the old fashioned, if you want it to be Uncle Nearest Ford, my favorite thing to order in a restaurant is a classic daiquiri, but to swap out the rum for Uncle Nearest. That's my favorite thing to order in a at a bar. Honestly, we did this all wrong. We should have met you in a bar and done this interview there. <laughs> we did this all wrong. Okay, we're going to move into the meat of our show and want to talk about how, how you became you. And so to do that, we want to wind all the way back to your, your childhood and, and family life. We read that you left home at age 15. I did. Give us some insight into your childhood and what brought about that circumstance. Yeah, I think what you'll find in, in Black households, most parents are authoritarian. It is just the way that we were raised. It's the way that we were taught. So if you go back 400 years, we came here, we were told what to do. And that generation handled the next generation the exact same way, telling them what to do. There was no grounds for any type of negotiation. Going back to the first question, it was, you're in my house, you do what I say. And some children, that doesn't work. I'm one of those kids. And it just didn't work with me. It's not that my parents were saying anything wrong. They were loving parents. They were great parents, but they were absolutely authoritative parents. And they were authoritative parents that were Christian, but were new Christians. And my father was one of the original hit makers from Motown. And he actually left Motown and went into ministry. And because of the celebrity, because he was always bringing celebrities around, then the church elevated him very quickly. So you have someone who's learning how to be a Christian and learning how to teach and to lead their household like a Christian household, but he himself didn't have a foundation yet. So it was really just a bunch of legalistic people telling him how he should raise his kids and my mother, how she should raise her kids. And they just missed the mark as it relates to a child like me. And so it just came to a head at 15 and they said, you have to do it this way or leave. And I was like, well, that's a really easy decision. And that was it. Everything you're saying, I'm like, okay, that, you know, I can totally see how that led to that, led to that. And then here you are, this success story, but you're 15 years old. 15 is, is, is half-baked. You're not even like a mini adult, like you're a kid. Yeah. I mean, walk us through, like you walk out of that house. Where did you go? I went to the hood. I went to the projects. So there were some girls at high school and I liked the fact that their parents didn't tell them what to do. So at the moment I was just looking for freedom and they had complete freedom. And so I moved into Jordan Downs. It's in Watts. It definitely is not a place that a person would consider safe, but I felt completely safe because the thing that was most important for me is I got to make the decisions. It didn't matter to me that I, I literally moved from this beautiful, big, white, two-story home on an acre or three quarters of an acre in Pasadena above the Rose Bowl to moving into the projects in Watts. To me, that geography didn't matter because I just needed the ability to be me. And I got that freedom once I left. So let's talk about what you first did with that freedom and how you started in the PR business. Yeah, I actually was interning of sorts of with a PR agency and the woman who owned it, the woman who founded it really took a liking to me. And I shared with her this idea that I had. And I think one of the things we have to remember is 15 year old now and 15 year old 30 years ago real different. We're coddling our kids a much, much like we're helicopter parenting to no end. 
And so it's a lot harder for the kids to like get out and do their own because we're not really setting them up to be able to do that. 30 years ago when I was 15, it wasn't as big of a deal. <laughs> like you were getting out at 17 or 18 either way. But what I was interning under one of the leaders, one of the African-American leaders in LA, and she had two particular clients that I took an interest in coming up with a different kind of media plan for them. So they usually would do the typical, okay, there's an announcement, send out a press release, see who picks it up, pitch it out. That was their, their strategy. My strategy was product integration. And 30 years ago, that wasn't really a thing. Now they would call it product placement, product integration. But at that time, it didn't really have a name for what it was. So for instance, they do a big jazz fest at the Hollywood Bowl. And so my idea for these two particular clients for their products was to make sure that their products were throughout the green room because all the press were going to come in and interview the jazz artists. Well, it's pretty normal now, but at that time, it was something they'd never heard of. And so the clients really took a liking to me. They allowed me to do it. They allowed me to execute it. But then the PR firm that I was in didn't really understand how that works and how that could lead to PR. So I was basically coming at PR from a different way than straight. And so they didn't really understand that, but the clients got it and the clients really wanted me to continue. And so the two clients and each one was paying about $5,000 a month said, if you decide to do your own PR firm, we're going to go with you because we like the strategy that you have and we want to see this play out. And so I started my PR firm with those two clients. I just have to stop for one second because this sounds like... <laughs> like Yes, I'm 18 when this is going the, on. The plot of a movie that like thinking about it two ways. One is you come in, you have, you're like this wonderkin. Clients love you. They want to work with you. Were you actively pitching? Like was the idea that you were going to start your own PR firm? Oh, no, no. No, it was definitely the client saying, if you start it, we'll go with you. That the last thing on my mind was starting my own. But if they didn't go with me, they were going to go with someone else because what they were looking for was something this particular PR firm wasn't able to do just because they were old school. How did you get the uh, nerve to not only strike out on your own, but to leave with clients of a company that you had interned for as an intern. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I think people are just wired a certain way, right? And so I think that I just, and I've always been this way, I have followed the paths that open up to me. And I don't really get super nervous. Actually, I don't get nervous at all about going down the paths that light up. I just go and just trust that that path is going to light up and take me to the next path. And if I get on the wrong path, then I will get back on the right path because that's the one that's going to be lit for me. And so for me, I've always kind of done that with reckless abandon, right or wrong. And that's kind of been my entire life. It's, I just open the door. I walk through the door. I look around, see if that's where I'm supposed to be. If not, I shut the door and then I literally go and open another door. So it's a little dangerous. <laughs> but where do you think that comes from? Because I think for a lot of people, they don't yeah, have like, that that's not mindset the... that it would be looked at as terrifying if there were two paths and they were just like jumping onto yeah. one. I've got an enormous amount of faith and, and I have for 
I'd say probably since I was 20. So from 15 to 20, I did, I was just kind of doing whatever. I really didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I was unhappy and I wasn't going to be unhappy. That piece I knew. And, and so that was more of a kind of search for happiness, if you will, right? The pursuit of happiness. But from 20-ish on, I tell people this all the time. To this day, the most powerful book for me that I've ever read is a book that would probably bore everyone else to death. And I read it when I was 20 and it's called Please Understand Me Too. That is how I learned my personality type. And up until that point, I would try to explain to people who I was and how I was. And then I read that and read how rare it was. And a lot of people that I meet, by the way, that are CEOs, that are founders, that are really shaking things up, they may not be that personality type, but they're one that's very close to it. But it wasn't until I read that book that I said, I'm not going to explain myself to anybody. I just need to be the one who understands me. And it doesn't matter if anyone else understands me. And so any, any notion of people pleasing left me after I read that book. So now it's like 25 years ago. And I think that when you don't have a need to people please, it's real easy to just kind of do things without fear or maybe not necessarily without fear, but moving beyond the fear. In other words, not allowing any type of fear to dictate what you do. I think divorcing yourself from caring about what people think of you and your decisions is what allows a person to do that. I feel like you're the most evolved human I've ever spoken to, where I really don't doubt your sense of confidence. It's very obvious that this is authentically like who you are. What I'm really interested though is it's one thing to kind of operate in the world like that and make choices and, and find your path as doors open, take advantage of those doors and, and follow through with it. It's another thing to bring people along with you. And when you think about, you know, you started this PR company and while in the end, that isn't the th reason that we're talking to you today, as you continue to build your career, you were building teams. And we listened to you on, on another podcast that we heard that you really believe in finding personality fits on teams. I would love to kind of better understand what you mean by that and how you really share your vision and strength with your team to get them to buy into. Yeah. So the culture of our company is radically transparent, right? It is one where I genuinely want all of my team members to win, but I don't want them to just win in my company. I want them to win in every area of their life. I want them to win in marriage. I want them to win in parenting. I want them to win in their hobbies. I want them to take a day off. So I've observed the Sabbath for 20 something years. I mean, those are the things that are important to me in our, literally in our company principles, it says rest is extolled. That is a core principle for us. And so I lead from my heart and I lead with transparency and I'm super no nonsense. And I think that people appreciate a leader who is no nonsense if they know that that leader truly and genuinely cares about them. And doesn't just care about them, but cares about their entire family. So I'll give you a few examples. During the holidays, we did regional holiday parties. And so depending on where you were in the country, there were like four different regional parties. And when we were in the South, my CBO, for whatever reason, it was like after Thanksgiving. And she goes, everyone go around and give one thing you're thankful for. And it's, you know, a table of like 20 people, including the spouses. And I mean, that thing took like three hours and, and, and you had people talking 
And one particular one stood up and he said, look, and very similar to me, he said, I left home when I was 15. We never had a good relationship with my family, never, ever truly experienced love until I came to this company. He's been with us for close to five years now. And he said, I didn't know what love looked like until I came here. And it's a sentiment that I've heard throughout. Our comptroller, God bless her, her husband has literally been on his deathbed for about the last year where they had given him a very small amount of time to live. So he's supposed to be gone and he's still here, which is amazing. And we absolutely love it. But he literally told her after 30 years of being in finance, he says, this is a family. I can actually leave and know you're going to be okay. We just literally had a, a, like a team lunch a couple of weeks ago. And she said, in 30 years of being in finance, I've never been able to be open with who I am, like to actually have conversations with people about something that's not numbers, like this is family. And so that still doesn't work for everyone, right? Some people don't want to be in a family environment. They really want to, when, when the, they want to work, and they don't want to talk about anything but work. They don't want you to get to know them. They don't want to get to know you. This ain't the company for you like that. <laughs> and I'm real clear about that. What do you think the difference is between a family environment and a team environment? It's a big difference. A team environment cares about working together toward a certain goal. A family environment means we care about you even when you're not working. We care about you even when you're not going toward a particular goal. We literally just care about you because we care about you. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the companies have started to put like in their guiding principles, we're a family. But if you really get into that, they really aren't. It's their way of saying, we want to be different. We want people to want to stay. And for me, I want you to go if there's a better place for you, if there's a better opportunity for you, I want you to go and I'm going to give you my full support. And by the way, I'm going to be your, your safety net should, should something not go right when you get out there in that big world. And so for me, my company, my investment company is called Grant Sydney. My husband and I, we've now this year will be 19 years of marriage. I'm a big fan of his. Congratulations. Uh, I, I like him a lot, it, but we've never been able to have kids. But we named our kids early on into our marriage, like really early on. And it was Grant Edward and Sydney Elizabeth. And when we realized we weren't going to be able to have kids, the investment company became Grant Sydney. And so wow. the way that we treat that, our team I love members that so much that you did that, we just take care of them. We absolutely take care of them. And we would sacrifice anything to make sure that our team is taken care of. And so I think that's the difference. Can you talk about how that changes the interview process? Oh, like how do you decide who you're letting in your family? Yeah. So here's the, here's the, it, this, it's a running joke, but I told the team at some point last year, I said, any person who comes for an interview, number one, I have to meet them in person during COVID. I didn't. And we actually made a mistake on it on a few folks that it ended up not actually being a good culture fit, but it was hard to know that through the Zoom, right? And then when they came around, we're like, they're more standoffish. They're more kind of shy in an environment with a lot of people. And it's like, we're a loud, boisterous family. That doesn't really work. 
But once we were able to to meet people again, I was like, there's zero chance that I'm ever hiring anyone again off of Zoom. They must come in person and I must share a meal with them. And at some point in that meal, I'm going to ask them for something on their plate and go, can I taste that? And if that like if they go and they look shocked, I'm like, oh, they don't know a family like our family. I mean, they could be the most talented people in the world. But I look for a culture fit first because I can teach the rest. In practice, like most people like don't fire family. And sometimes a hire, like it just doesn't work out despite best intentions on both sides. What happens when you do have to let somebody go? Yeah, so I actually haven't. The situations where I've realized it's not a good fit, I've gone to them and said, this isn't a good fit. This doesn't work. But this is what I believe your strengths and your gifts to be. And I will 100% support you looking for another job. So I'll give you a good example. One of the women in our, our company who I think is, is phenomenal, I absolutely do. She just wasn't a good culture fit for us. And I was really honest with her and said, you will not grow in my company. You're not a good fit, but I think you're a good fit somewhere. And so you use me as a reference on any interview that you do that you believe will be a good fit. And you are going to have a home here until you find that right fit. She was looking for a job for a full year before she found the right fit for her and had my support every step of the way and her leader's support, even though we all knew she wasn't the right fit. And so that kind of goes back to that being radically transparent is I'm not going to let someone sit in my company if I know I'm not going to advance them. That's not fair to them. And so I'm really honest with them and say, over time, I just don't see you growing in this company. So let's get you in a company where you can grow. I want to talk about the book you wrote because... Which one? I, well, I want to talk about marriage. Okay. And the book that you wrote where you interviewed different couples and talked about... Yeah. Kind of like, how do you stay happy? Happy Wives Club. Yeah. How do, how do you stay in the Happy Wives Club? My <laughs> husband is is looking at me from across our, our shared dining room table Zoom uh, <laughs> setup. But I mean, what I love about your story is the view you have on family, the way that you talk about these paths lighting up. And when I was reading about you, I was like, this part kind of like doesn't fit in, but then actually speaking with you today, it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah, it's my, it's my ethos. It is everything around me centers around love, around honor, around respect. A lot of people have two lives or three, really. They have the work life, they have the friend life, and they have the home life. And they're a different person in each of those lives. I'm the same person in all of those lives. And that's incredibly freeing. Like you're going to get with me who you're going to get. Were you always that way? Yeah. And it was, it was really hard in the, in the earlier years before I actually understood who I was. It was really hard because it's hard to just tell people you literally want them to understand you. Right. And so from let's call it childhood until I was probably right before my 21st birthday, I was trying to get people to understand me. And then right before my 21st birthday, I was like, actually, no one has to understand me. I will live my life and the people who appreciate me for who I am are the ones who will be around. And if they don't, there's a, like a lot of people in the world they can be around. <laughs> 
even the way I've chosen my investors, I've handpicked my investors and I have a no assholes policy. And people were really, really surprised. They're like, how do you build this without VC and, and PE money? And I mean, the VC guys will, will hate me for saying this, but they will admit that it's true, is if you're with a VC person one-on-one, -on -one, a VC manager, they're usually incredible people one-on-one. -on -one. But then they get within the VC and there's all these other people around. And then all of a sudden, they act quite different. The way I describe it is, is individually, they're coyotes. You put them in a pack, they're ferocious as hell. And so I wouldn't allow anyone in my company as an investor that was an individual that I couldn't look eye to eye and see, is that, does that person have love in their heart? What's their intention for this? So the Happy Wives Club, just to kind of give your, your folks a, a read on that is I interviewed happily married couples 25 years or more in six different continents, 12 different countries. And the way that I got to them is people that I knew in other countries. I'd literally reach into them and say, connect me to the couple that has been in love for 25 years. Not only would the community say it, but their own kids would say it. I want to hear it from the people who lived in their house, because what some people will show to the world isn't really what's going on behind closed doors. And I would literally get on a plane, go interview that couple. And what I was looking for is number one, I wanted to travel the world. So I thought it'd be brilliant to have a publisher pay for it. That was number one. Uh, <laughs> and number two is I was looking for that one common denominator, no matter your race, your background, your religion, socioeconomic status, what is that constant? There ended up being 12. And one of the things I noticed in each of them is the women were incredibly strong. No weak women. And so that mutual respect was the number one thing. And so there was this equal love, this equal respect, this equal admiration. And that's where everything started from. And so there, you know, there's 11 more, but that was number one. We could have a whole podcast about just that topic. Um, but in the interest <laughs> of time, I'm going to ask you to tell us the story of Nearest Green. Oh, yeah. Nearest Green, first known African-American master distiller. He was the first master distiller for Jack Daniel. He's the only known master distiller for distillery number seven. And there is a process that distinguishes Kentucky bourbon from Tennessee whiskey. And that process is the process that Nearest Green taught to a young Jack Daniel. It is the process that came in with the West Africans. It's taking a traditional bourbon distillate, if you will, and filtering it through sugar maple charcoal very slowly over time, over the course of a couple of weeks, and then putting it in the barrel to age. So in other words, it's a process that was smoothing out the whiskey. And that process, the reason why I absolutely love Tennessee whiskey, premium Tennessee whiskey, which is what we, we are and, and what we make at our distillery. The reason I love Tennessee whiskey is because it is genuinely and authentically an all American spirit. And that is to say that it is something that brought in a part of the West Africans who came into our country, not willingly, but we're here uh, and grateful to be here now. But you know, my ancestors, I would imagine to say they would not have had the same outlook on life as I do at the current moment. But it took 
both of us, meaning it took those West Africans that came in and it took the white. So the Scottish, the Irish, those were the ones who were making the whiskey. And then you have this West African process that comes in. And so for the first time, we're really seeing blacks and whites have to work together, bringing their two processes together to create Tennessee whiskey. It's one of the reasons I absolutely love it. Very, very male. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was. We've we've shaken that up quite a bit over the last five years. But but yes. Like, what was it like to get into it? Yeah. Well, first of all, my entire leadership team are women. And it wasn't because I was looking to have an all women leadership team. I didn't even realize I had one, ironically, because we have men in leadership as well. It's just that they all report into women and my company. And so since we're always together in our meetings, it never dawned on me that my entire leader, like executive team were women until I was sharing with the press one day, but I wasn't looking for women. I was just looking for the best person for the job that fit the culture and that we're doing it not for money, but really we're doing it because they understood we're not in the whiskey business. We're in the legacy cementing business. It just so happens that we got to make one hell of a, of a whiskey in order to cement the legacy of nearest green. And so coming into this industry with all women, Needless to say, we weren't getting our phone calls returned and we didn't know that what was going on. And I said, let me test out a theory. Send me everyone you've been trying to reach for the last few weeks. Give me a synopsis of what you need from that person. I mean, we're talking about distributors, bottling partners, inventory. I mean, like key things we need in order to start this whiskey company. And so I had them send it all to me. And then I sent it to my husband and I said, hey, babe, can you call all these people and just tell them that you, you know, are the founder or CEO of Uncle Nearest? And can you see if you can get through? These are the things we need. In every instance, he got through either the same day or they or like at that moment when he called or they would call him back by the end of the day. And at some point in their conversation, there would be a, hey, do you drink beer? You want to get together for a beer? Or, hey, do you golf? Do you want to, you know? And so, yes, it was a closed off industry, but I am such a get or done person. I wasn't bothered by that at all. I looked at it as, okay, babe, keep making these phone calls. We're going to fly completely under the radar. We're going to come out of nowhere and shock this entire company. So if you go back and you look at my initial interviews, hundreds of interviews I did in those first few years, I'm listed as chief historian, not founder and CEO. Wow. And that's how we entered into into this market. I just feel like there's so much more we could talk about and ask. We're going to have to do a a second round of this podcast. I do want to go to a listener question from Elise. Elise would like to know, throughout all your different industries you've been in, what has been the one skill or quality you've used in all of them? Do it with excellence or don't do it at all. It's literally our first company principle is do it with excellence or don't do it at all. That means that if I'm working on something and I can't see it to the very end with excellence, I pivot. Everybody in my company is skilled at pivoting when something isn't working. We don't fall in love with our own ideas. We don't fall in love with the amount of work we've put into something. If something doesn't work, move on and do something new. So I would say the the two qualities is, is that. The other is you have to say no a lot. You have to say no. In my company, it's called HBU, highest and best use of time. If it's not HBU for me, the skim is HBU for me. That's why we're on this, right? But (laughs) 
for every one that gets a yes, there's probably 50 that get no's because everything gets vetted before it gets to me because it's got to be HBU by the time it gets here. I love that. Fawn, who is somebody else we should have on this show? Victoria Edie Butler, near screens, fifth generation, our master blender. She is the first back-to-back master blender of the year for Whiskey Magazine. Wow. And when she won it last year, it was the first time that distinction had ever gone to a woman. She's remarkable. Oh my goodness. Will you introduce us? I will absolutely introduce you. We would love to talk to her. Great. Fawn, this was definitely our HBU conversation um, and really appreciate all learning and hearing all that you've done and your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 